Welcome to all of you, the beginning for our schools of spring break. It's always a gamble uh, having worship on the, the precipice of spring break, but you've, you come today and I'm most appreciative of that. We've been, we've been looking at a series on relationships and we've called it the glorious mess. That's a good way to describe our relationships. And when I say relationships, don't, don't mistake that for just romantic or family or friends. We have relationships to all kinds of things, technology, society, other races, our work, our hobbies, our money. We're in relationship to everything because we were created to be relational people. We, we image God in that way. Uh, unfortunately, you and I are not God, and so we often find ourselves in the mess part. But that's why the gospel has come, to, to redeem relationships, to restore us, to get in touch with the image of God in us, and to see that image of God in others. What a world that would be. What an experience that would be. This morning and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at really three, three things in our relationships that are worth taking note of and fleeing from. Uh, one is a dragon. Every relationship has a dragon. And then next week, a ghost. Every relationship has a ghost. And then the week after that, poison. Every relationship suffers from a poison. So those will be the three negatives. And then after that, we'll go into the marriage and children and work and technology and so forth, how we use the gospel to relate. Well, let me, uh, let me pray, and then we're going to read God's Word this morning. Father, would you help us now in this moment to once again bow our hearts before you. You are the eternal God who has looked upon us with mercy. And we long for that today, Lord. Uh, certainly, if we were to stand before You in Your full presence, we would shudder. And Lord, we would deserve nothing from You but our, our just deserts. Lord, we would stand before You condemned in our own. But Lord, we have put our trust in Christ Jesus. And it's been your pleasure to count us righteous in Him. And for those who confess His name, Lord, we pray that you would uh, this morning uh, use this uh, word to encourage and challenge and comfort. And Father, for those among us who don't follow you, be, be kind and merciful and call them, Lord, to yourself. Uh, we pray for these special mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read what Paul the Apostle writes, and let's dig into our, our dragon. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul writes, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and even if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body even to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is God's holy word. Well, there once was a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. It's the way C.S. Lewis begins his classic, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia series, which was Lewis's way of teaching the truth of the gospel and the Bible through the eyes of a child and through the imaginations and wonders of children. And um, we learn a lot that children know better than we do quite often. In his third book, Eustace Scrubbed is introduced as a cousin of the main characters. He's described as an only child of very up-to-date and modern parents. He was a snotty brat, a know-it-all. He had the disease of one-upmanship. You know what that is? I'll one-up you. Rude, arrogant, condescending. Self-centered, very critical of those around him. He was awesome. And he wanted everyone to know it. He would have loved social media. Somewhere on the voyage, Eustace finds himself alone on an island. And he wakes up from a sleep and feels a little bit strained and uncomfortable. His muscles feel like they have been worked hard. And so he gets up, and every time he moves, he hears something that is rustling behind him. And it concerns him enough that he begins to look around for that noise, and he stumbles upon a pool of water, and there he catches a reflection of a dragon, and it scares him to death. And he backs up. And then he moves again toward the water, and guess what? He sees the dragon again, and he backs up. By the third time, he realized he was the dragon. It's C.S. Lewis's way of demonstrating that here was this little boy, but inside was a dragon. And his outsides came to reflect what was inside of him, a, a dragon. A little boy who was a fierce dragon. That's, that's what pride is. A dragon that lives in every person. But we can conceal it with, of course, our outsides. Beneath beneath the surface of every human heart, and this is biblical, we have a dragon called pride. And if I have a dragon of pride, and you have a dragon of pride, and they have a dragon of pride, how do you think relationships are going to go if that dragon is unchecked. Well, behind every sinful emotion, 
behind every outburst of anger and control and rage and envy and jealousy, all of the things we consider sin, at the root of those are pride. Behind every sinful action, even the simple ones like, I just have to have that new blank to make me feel good, as simple as that is, behind that is pride. Pride rests behind every sin. It is the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Their sin wasn't that they ate. The sin is why they wanted to eat, to be as God. Pride is hard actually to define. I went to the thesaurus. That's a hard word to say. I went to the thesaurus, which sounds like a dinosaur. And this is what pride was described as. These were the synonyms. Braggart. Boastful, arrogance, showboat, conceited, pompous, egotistical, snotty. When we hear those words, though, it's very easy to think they only are outside of us. They seem to describe the people we see. And that's what, that's what C.S. Lewis in his other famous book, Mere Christianity, says about pride. We can't define it, but we know it when we see it. We loathe it when we see it in others, but rarely do we see it in ourselves, which is, of course, the disease of pride. Well, we're Christians, and so our definitions have to go beyond a thesaurus. Webster's a great guy, but the Bible is going to give us something more, something truer, something more real. And what I've just read to you in 1 Corinthians 13 is a way Paul uses a word called love to actually help us understand what pride is by reversing what love is. Uh, Love, of course, has an opposite emotion. Love taken as emotion does have an opposite hate. But the Christians brought something to the world that, well, the Greek world didn't have. They had brotherly love and romantic love, and they had, you know, a faithful friendship love. But the love Christianity introduced to the world was unheard of, agape love. That's the word used here. Agape is the kind of love that says, I will die for another person. I will give over my rights so that someone else will benefit. Of course, it comes from the Lord Jesus Himself, who even twisted the knife farther and says, you want to know what agape is? You will die for your enemies. Which is what He did for us. When Paul uses this word of love, He's speaking more along the lines of not just an emotion, which it is, but it's a virtue acted out. It's an action. And if if hate's the emotional opposite of love, then pride has to be the active opposite of love. So we'll call it this, love is humility acted out, fleshed out. Now, we've heard this passage read at weddings. Uh, It shouldn't be, but we do. (laughs) Paul didn't write it for the couple coming up front. He wrote it to a church. Any couple that would take these words and think, well, that's me. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) give it a week. Paul is actually writing to a church 
And he's addressing, if we can use the word, pride. Pride has wreaked havoc within this congregation at Corinth. And it's fleshed itself out in ways that may, may actually sound pretty familiar to you. There was a, a, a war going on between two groups of people. One preferred this preacher, and the other preferred this preacher. And one group preferred a preacher that was eloquent and charming and brilliant. And then the other group preferred a preacher that was a little grittier, sound in his doctrine, but not in his performance. So they warred about that. He was very concerned that amongst them there was kind of an un, un, um, unchallenged habit of suing one another. Christians taking other Christians to the public court. He warned that that might uh, lead to the seizure of your property. Uh, that was going on. There was also something in chapter 5 described as a man who had a, uh, a, a, a sexual sin, very public, but he did not care that it affected the, the rest of the church. And so that was his pride expressed. I don't, it's me, it's my body, I don't care how it affects anybody else. But the church also, Paul challenges, didn't call him out, which was pride too. They were afraid. Oh, there's a group in the church that seems to be um, dealing with uh, they, they're the conscience police, I call them. Uh, they would say that there are people who want to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols, which they would sell in the marketplace, and said, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't do that. And Paul writes back and says, it's something they've always done. It's going to take time for them to come to that conviction. So go easy. The conscience police are those who, who use words like, a Christian should never fill in the blank. Or all Christians ought to fill in the blank. And it has a little truth, but it's usually just some preference attached to it. That's what they were doing. And that developed these rivalries and pride. There was even a group who, they were so spiritual that they, they, um, they, they claimed that they had these practices and experiences of the Holy Spirit that other people didn't. And so they, they created two tiers of believers fleshly Christians, and then really spiritual Christians. The notion of all of those incidences is what leads Paul to this chapter 13. It's culminating in a correction of this pride that has just manifested itself and wreaked havoc in this church. They were a, a rivalrous church. They were involved in power plays and grudges and manipulation and criticism and, as I said, binding of consciences. So Paul writes this beautiful poetic word, but you can't take it as a checklist. That would be folly. What Paul presents here is a description. You'll notice that. He just says love is and love is not. He doesn't say, you better love this way. He knows us too well. But he describes love in such a way that we're to think of it as a mirror. And what is the purpose of a mirror? Well, the most fundamental purpose of a mirror is to show you your flaws. 
rather than revealing to us often what we are, it's meant to tell us what we are not. And that's the first purpose of the mirror. It it gives us a sense that we, we must be challenged by looking in the perfect mirror of love and seeing that love is described in ways that is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's never arrogant or rude. It never insists on its own way. If you get to that one and you're saying, that's me, <laughs> keep looking deeper. The mirror reveals something about us. And that's how the Bible leads us to humbly seek the salvation of Jesus Christ. There's a story we have to be jarred. There's a story of Muhammad Ali. Some of you, we're finally at a generation where some of you might not even know who Ali is, but one of the great world boxing champions. And Ali was such a PR guy that even before he'd fought his first fight against Sonny Liston, his first championship, he was declaring himself the greatest. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Could you imagine uh, standing up in the streets and saying, I am the greatest? Well, in many ways, he proved that to be true. He was an incredibly gifted boxer. And when you're the greatest, you know, you begin to think about yourself in a way that, well, may not be true. And so you have to be taken down a peg. There's a story of Ali on an airplane. And he's heard the seatbelt warning more than once. But you know the person. He doesn't click his seatbelt. And so the flight attendant has to go up to him and say, Mr. Ali, you need to... You need to fasten your seatbelt. Superman don't need no super uh, seatbelt, <laughs> Ollie said. And the stewardess uh, rang back to him and said, yeah, but Superman also doesn't need to fly on a plane, so buckle up. <laughs> she got him that time, right? I think Paul's doing something like that here. As you see the, the majesty, it's a portrait of what is grand and beautiful and pure and right. There's a part of us that has to look at that and see ourselves for who we really are, thinking about our relationships as they really present themselves. But, despair over our flaws and over our inabilities to be all that this is, is not Paul's purpose. One is not to read this list and say, you know what, but I am unkind, and I can be arrogant, and I am often rude, and I'm often rejoicing at wrongdoing, and yes, I want my way. Shame on me. That's not Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose is as you look at that mirror, you you begin to realize, I don't want to look at that, and you begin to tilt it. And as you tilt that mirror, you see what he's describing in that mirror. It's another face. It's the face of the Savior. He's showing the Corinthian church who's wrapped up in their own egos and their own desires to be who they want to be and get their way in everything, what Jesus looks like as He looks at them And so he begins that beautiful description of love is patient and kind. I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis again. Paul's purpose in demonstrating this marvelous 
beautiful writing that we cross-stitch and hang on our walls is not written so that you and I would think less of ourselves. I'm just not blank. Rather, it's to tilt the mirror and to see the face of Jesus and to think, think of ourselves less. Let me say that again. The goal here is not to think less of yourself. You're so bad. But it's to learn to think less. I mean, it's to think of yourself less. Sorry, I'm kind of stuttered today. It's hard to lead singing and then turn to preaching. Forgive me. So despair is not Paul's intent. What we see in these verses is how Jesus treats us despite us. Jesus is patient and kind toward those who are impatient and unkind. Jesus is humble toward those who are, guess what, arrogant and rude and who envy and so forth. So Paul here is presenting the problem with pride and it's havoc on our relationships. So he begins. He begins by saying Jesus is patient. Love is patient. Patience is the way humility relates to other people with flaws. Patience. Patience has a large capacity for the flaws of other people. Patience is a humility expressed toward the student driver in front of you on the road. Humility is a large capacity to have compassion on the waiter who seems to be spending more time at their table than ours. Patience is taking life's unexpecteds and trusting that God knows what He's doing without immediate change and immediate answers. He says this, love is not arrogant. Very visual word that Paul uses to describe pride. It's a word, in fact, he created. Scholars have scoured all the writings of the ancient world. They can't find this word anywhere but in the writings of Paul. And he uses them five times in this book. (laughs) And what he means by the arrogant is it's a word picture. The word he uses is to be inflated like a balloon. To be puffed up. You've heard that expression. To be puffed up. To be bloated. To be bloating yourself. Right? That's what he means by arrogant. But if you've ever had surgery and they have gone into your tummy, they have to blow it up and create a space for the the surgery to happen and it is painful. It is arrogant like that. He says here too that love does not envy. Humility The opposite of pride does not envy, but pride, pride resents someone else's fortunes. That's what envy is. It's not so much of I want what they have, that's covet. It's I hate that they have it. Envy hates that other people have talents it doesn't, or gets the promotion that they're overlooked for, or does not receive the recognition, or is incensed that they weren't invited to the party. 
Love, he says, does not boast. This is a big one. Love does not boast. The Bible uses the word boast all throughout, and it's always calling men back to this thing. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But the Bible knows we boast usually in other things. To boast is to put something in front of us. To put something out in front of us that when others look at it, they know that's what makes us or defines us. And we do it in casual ways. I root for blank. You don't. That's a form of boasting. Sports and politics, and we can boast in our race, and we can boast in the generation we're born, we can boast in the neighborhood we grew up in, we can boast at the high school we went to, blah, 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 blah. Fill in the blank. It's putting something up in front of you that says, when you look at this, you'll know I'm somebody, and I count. Boasting means also to talk about oneself. Yikes. To bloat oneself, to inform others of oneself. You remember The Apprentice? Of course you do. The, the host of it became president. But it was a show about the, the cutthroat business world of Manhattan. And you remember they would interview the contestants before you know, they were declared worthy of staying or having to go. Could you imagine in that moment being asked, why should I hire you? And responding in a humble way and saying, I'm, I'm not sure you should. James did way better on the project than I did. What would be the response? You're fired. We're trained in that. That's, we know we have to, if I'm going to make it, I've got to, I've got to tell you how awesome I am. It even inserts itself into conversations, right? I had a wisdom tooth removed. Me too, but I had two and no anesthesia. We vacationed this year at Disney World. Really? Oh, that's, oh man, that's all. We did it. We did Disney World in Paris. I didn't ask you about that, right? It inserts itself. We, we boast. That's, that's an expression of pride that's covering up some insecurity. And Paul says that will destroy our relationships. It is the opposite of love. It is the exaltation of pride. Verse 5a, it says, it does not love. The opposite of pride does not insist on its own way. I love the language he used of it. It insists. Not just in getting its own way. I insist. Don't you see that in yourself? Lewis concludes in his great book, Mere Christianity. Here's the deal with pride. It's competitive by nature. No person is content with just being pretty. They have to be prettier, he says. No person is content with being smart. I must be smarter, he says. No one is content being fit. I must be fitter. He says, even if we were left on an abandoned island and there was one other person, that person would become my rival and my enemy. That's the nature of pride. Now you, you translate all of that into the relationships of a marriage or with children and parents or at work or with society, 
or within a church. Churches have literally split over music, carpet, um, uh, trivialities that become exalted to the place of, well, worship. The beauty of Paul here is he doesn't end negatively, right? He says, at least in our verse 7, love bears all things. He begins to speak positively, not what it is not, but what it is. It bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As you look at the mirror and you see the face of Jesus and you know yourself to be these things, you're, you're seeing what Jesus thinks of those people. He holds out hope and He bears all things on their behalf and He believes all things for them and He's hoping in all things and yes, He will endure all things. Pride makes us cynical to where we even question the power of God to change a life, to change a community, to change an attitude, to change a posture, to change a heart. Here he describes the beauty of what humility looks to. Well, how does that affect us? We've defined pride from the Bible's perspective. So what? Well, the first thing is always our relationship to God. That's the primary and a heart that is swimming in the arrogance of itself and the boastfulness of itself and the insistence on being first in everything and recognized and doted over and mesmerizing, that person will conclude that I'm God, actually. And I will exalt myself to the place of, well, the language my mama would use. You think you're the center of the universe. And that the world, she would say, revolves around you. And that is an easy thing. Whereas, whereas humility accepts the order of the way God has made our limitations and our need of trust in Him. So, pride is the anti-God posture. Humility is the proper posture. What about to others? We relate to not only God, but we relate to other people. The Old Testament has a word that's very vivid that describes pride as we relate to other people. Haughty eyes. We don't use that kind of language, but that's the words. Haughty eyes. Here's what it means. Everyone assumes that they have a judge's robe and a gavel. And that their great calling in life is to walk around and assess other people and make declarations and verdicts. Approved, disapproved. Even to the degree that like a judge you can assign a title, convict. Unworthy. Outsider. Not my friend. Those are haughty eyes. The, the ability to look down on others, and we are guilty in so many ways. And it creates an environment that is, of course, destructive in so many ways. Pride will require of us as we relate to others that either they serve us or we serve them. 
And if they serve us, guess what? If we need other people, if God's declaration of I love you and you are mine is not enough, we will incessantly need other people, whether it's a spouse or our children or our boss or our employees or our audience. And if that's the case, we will always disappoint them. And if it's reverse and they need us, they will be disappointed by us and we will be disappointed by them. To self, pride twists us, and I've spoken enough about selfishness, but pride can even twist humility. Here are these examples real quick. I will admit that I sometimes use being polite, not out of humility, but out of pride. I'm more interested in the person I'm being polite to in liking me than I am actually interested in helping them. I won't ask you to raise your hand because I know the answer. We all struggle with this. It looks humble. It looks polite. But what I'm after is I insist that you like me. It's pride. Even though it looks humble. Generosity. Social media has created a marvelous environment to do the humble brag. You know what I'm talking about? I got to take a photo of me taking, you know, clothes to the shelter. And I will wait for the likes to pour in. It looks humble, but it's actually a way of saying, please notice me. And then my favorite, which is something I'm so guilty of, pride, actually, when we self-loathe. You ever do that? Self-loathing. I'm so fat. I'm so dumb. I'm so ugly. And then we wait. And we're waiting for that other person to say, oh, hey, you're not that ugly. I know lots of people uglier than you. I want to describe for you this morning the depths of how this takes. None of us will leave these doors and suddenly be shed of it. Some of us will try. Some of us will begin to think, you know what? He's right. I struggle with pride. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to fall into pride. I'm not going to fall into pride. I'm not going to fall into pride. Do you, do you know what that is? Pride. <laughs> it's a disease you can't heal. So you begin to look more at the mirror of the face looking at you rather than the face of your own reflection. And that's what Eustace Scrub discovered. That the cure for pride, which is, by the way, the cure for all of our relational troubles, the cure for every single relational issue we have, and that is a lot. What do you do? Well, here's what Eustace Scrub learned. He grew sick of being a dragon. And he did that thing I just mentioned. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So he began to peel off the scales himself. He noticed he had claws. He could could start to tear them off. But as soon as he got one off, it would grow back. And then out of nowhere, Aslan, which is in Lewis's book, the, the figure of Jesus, a lion, shows up. And he sees Eustace, this rotten kid, this arrogant, spoiled brat, 
who's so desperate to no longer be a dragon, but become a little boy again, human again, Aslan says, you'll have to let me heal you. Lie down. And he lays on his back. And he says, Aslan's first claw stuck in so deep, I thought I was going to die. That's what pride feels like. The moment it's challenged, it hurts. How dare you? But as that began to peel away, the dragon scales began to turn into little boy flesh once again. He had learned the key. The dragon is there. But I need the lion. And no longer am I going to look in the pool and see the dragon. Oh, you are a horrible person. Rather, I'm going to look at the lion and I'm going to lay on my back and I'm going to take a posture where he can heal me. Eyes on the lion, not on the dragon. Paul the Apostle writes this to the people at Philippi, dealing with the same stuff. If you read the New Testament epistle, these are churches and they all are wrestling with pride. Guess what? Every church henceforth will wrestle with pride. Every marriage henceforth Pride. Every parent-child relationship, pride. Every environment where you work, greener grass ain't there, pride. Paul says this though, there is an advantage to knowing Jesus. Because you've seen the lion. You'll forget. You'll think you're a dragon. But look at the lion again, he says in Philippians 2. He says this, it's an amazing statement. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, I'm done. (laughs) Right out of the door. How am I going to do anything without it benefiting me? Without a return? But that's what Paul says. Do things where there's no benefit to you. What? But in humility, he says, count others more important than you. More significant than yourself. Well, that sounds like I'm thinking that I'm a a, a loser, less than. Hang on. He says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, which is important, but also to the interests of others. The interests of others. Interest in their interests. Here's a miraculous verse. In verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's not saying if you will really work hard to obtain humility, then you'll have it. He says, no, you won't ever have it on your own. But have this mind, readjust your mind, renew your mind, recalibrate your thinking and heart to understand this is yours in Christ Jesus. Done, finished, full stop. What is mine? Well, he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he he took the form of a servant being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Applied to you. 
He who had every reason to be exalted and proud set it aside that He would be able to come to those who do exalt themselves and give them His humility. Give them His achievement. He humbled Himself to the point of death. He died for His enemies. For those that mock Him. For those that are arrogant toward Him. Me, standing here, the chief. God then rose, he rose from the dead, he exalted him and bestowed on him the name uh, that is above every name. The least shall be first and the last. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is the Lord. There it is. It beholds the lion. <laughs> And then it gets back to its life. Jesus gives us His reflection in that mirror. And He takes our reflection with all of its blemishes. And interestingly, as you look at this passage, which seems so impossible, that if you were to stand before God and say, Lord, you're going to let me in heaven because I've been patient and kind, and I've never envied, I've never boasted, you're toast. But you look at it and you say, this is what Christ did for me. And as you look at that mirror, you begin to see your reflection changing just a bit. You actually begin to look like Him. Pure love. Pure humility. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, would You take um, Your Word And Lord, bind to our hearts the things which honor You. Lord, the things which draw attention to Your glory. Lord, we we ask as hard as it is that You would use this kind of Word to convict us. But Lord, to not stay there, to learn that we've been been challenged so that we'll seek the healing. Where, Where is the comfort here? Help us to look to our true hero, the true portrait of love, the true portrait of humility, even, Lord, as we will wrestle with these things the remainder of our lives. Remind us that we are Yours and You are ours. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.